This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. There's always a physiological explanation for what's happening to your body. It's not always the one people want to hear, but there's always an explanation. And my number one rule of thumb is if someone is selling you a supplement, they are an unreliable source of medical information. You should not be following that person. You can use them as your store or your source of information, but you cannot use them as both. And so if they have a store, they should be done for you. Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hi everyone, welcome to today's episode. I couldn't be more excited about interviewing the one and only Dr. Jennifer Gunter, who is an OBGYN and pain medicine physician in California. She is brilliant, writes a ton about sex, science, and social media, and essentially is trying to clean up the misinformation all over the internet about women's health. Dr. Gunter is my hero. And she's the hero to a lot of women who have been kind of duped by the goop sort of era of wellness and health misinformation. In this two-part interview, this episode covers why Jen became an OBGYN and how she's been duped herself, finding herself down the misinformation rabbit hole after her pregnancy. She is the writer of the must-read books, The Vagina Bible and The Menopause Manifesto, and we discuss them both. She debunks the most common myths in women's health, including everything related to vaginal discharge, feminine products, douching, yeast infections, birth control pills, PCOS, peeing after sex, and UTIs. Dr. Gunter explains why you should say no to wipes and avoid the swizzle. Yes, there is something called the swizzle and why seed cycling and organic tampons are a bunch of BS. She discusses vaccines and infertility and the concerns with pregnant women catching COVID. You're going to want to hear this. So let's get to it. Hi, everyone. We are here with Dr. Jen Gunter, who you guys already heard an intro about her, but this is the best day of my life, Jen, because I've just been waiting for Jen to do the podcast with me. I'm unbelievably excited. She's so incredible. And it, we're just such an honor to have you here, Jen. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I'm so glad we're going to get this chance to chat. Yeah, Jen and I have really bonded a lot about fighting misinformation on social media. And I learned from Jen in every single which way possible. If you follow me on social media, you already know that I am constantly sharing her content because it's so helpful. And Jen, we got literally thousands of questions for you. So I, I tried to narrow down to the questions that were really repetitive because there's a lot of common themes out there, which made me realize that there is a lot of common misinformation in the women's health space. And I just wanted to start with one question that I thought was so great that that came up quite a bit too, was that how did you decide to go into OBGYN and how did you also decide to kind of fight misinformation in this area? Because your two books, The Vagina Bible and The Menopause Manifesto, for anyone listening, they are the most incredible uh, gift for yourself, for your family, for your friends, because they truly do demystify a lot of misconceptions about women's health. So how did you get to where you are today? What made you go into this? Uh, well, you know, I was, I was young when I started medical school, I was a wee thing. I was, you know, 20, the first, you know, I turned 20, like a week before or like a couple of weeks before school started. So I had like no idea about anything that I really wanted to, I got into medicine because I'd had a lot of medical problems when I was 11 or 12. And so I'd been in and out of the hospital and I really got fascinated with it. So that's why I got like, so I knew I wanted to be a doctor because I thought it was super cool. Uh, and I liked, uh, you know, I liked the science and I was, you know, bothered, I think in my first couple of years by the lack of women professors, this was in the mid 1980s, right? Late mid to late 1980s. 
I mean, I had a couple, but that was it. And on the wards, very few. I mean, there were a few, you know, more women students, but very few women. And, you know, I just, it bothered me that none of my lectures, not one lecture in OBGYN was given by a woman. That just like really bothered me. Oh my God. And I, you know what? The men were all fantastic. These weren't like creepy, like me too dudes or not that I know of. So, you know, there's always that, but they didn't come across that way. Certainly some did. Right. But these guys came across as like, you know, committed and, you know, they were great teachers, but I just thought, you know, wow, like, you know, we don't have parody here. So I just decided that I was going to become an OBGYN because women deserve the best and I was the best. So that was how I came into it. I love it. And what made you really deep dive into kind of debunking a lot of the misinformation? Like what made you write your two books, which I find to be, I think they should be part of our medical curriculum. Like I think they're, I truly do. I think that they're so evidence-based and, and you know me, I I talk a lot about evidence-based medicine too. And I think that we live in a world where evidence-based medicine and scientific communication is really at a crossroads where there's so much misinformation out there in pseudoscience that it's really hard to, for a lot of people, including physicians to decipher what's real, what's not real. So what made you write these two books? What made you go into this area of helping to disseminate this really accurate scientific information that truthfully has helped me as a physician too? your books? Oh, thank you. Well, I, I guess I realized fairly soon out of the gate that I was good at explaining things to patients. And so I remember as a resident, you know, you know, trailing behind the staff guy going in the room and he'd be like, now mother, and we're going to do and explain like how we were going to do the delivery in like the most complicated way. And I just be I seeing this poor woman, you know, who's been like awake for like 40 hours and then he'd leave. And I say, okay, this is what he really means. This yeah. is going to happen. And let me give you an analogy. And she's like, oh, okay, got it. So, you know, like just, so I used to do that. I used to trail behind the staff guys, like giving like, okay, I'm going to give you the real world explanation now. Here's what it really means. And so, you know, and I'm a subspecialist and, and a lot of times, I think one of the big secrets of being a subspecialist is you just explain it better. You know, like a lot of times I'm saying exactly what the general OBGYN recommended or the general dermatologist, but because I do it all the time and I have more maybe analogies, other things that people like, oh, now I get it. Okay. That treatment makes sense. So I sort of always knew I was, I think a good explainer. And then I had uh, my own interactions with the healthcare system when my, when I was pregnant. So, you know, I had a triplet pregnancy and I delivered early and one of my sons died and the other two in the ICU for a very long time. They were 26 weeks. And uh, one of them also has, you know, a complex cardiac defect. He had a massive ASD and pulmonary valve stenosis. And so he, you know, was 783 grams and he Mm -hmm. needed to have his pulmonary valve ballooned, but there was no equipment small enough. Right. Gosh. Yeah. So you start researching stuff online because you're like, oh, great. My kid's a case report. That's awesome. And so you start researching things and then you start reading about stem cell clinics and you start, you know, and then my other son has cerebral palsy. And so, you know, you're dealing with all these things that aren't fixable. They're not curable in any way, but they're manageable. They're ways to make it better. And for a while I got sucked down some of these rabbit holes. I made treatment decisions based on like formula changes and other kinds of stuff that was all based on scam stuff I'd read, but my doctor couldn't give me practical real world advice. Right. I mean, like, and I was just like, I still remember being up one night, um, you know, they were on oxygen for a year and one of them had a horrible diaper rash. I had to put like a diaper rash ointment on, but the ointment said that don't use around anything that's flammable. I'm like, well, wait a minute, my kid's on oxygen and that's flammable. Is it okay to use a petroleum product when your kid's on oxygen? I couldn't find the answer from anybody. So I called the helpline for the mm-hmm. pediatrician's office and they're like, oh, well, no one's ever asked that question before. I'm like, okay, but that seems like yeah. Like a a question. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, and obviously, you know, I mean, I ended up having to do it and everything was fine. He didn't spontaneously combust, but I just remember like all these like real world things that they just didn't have the answers for. So after my kids got older and things got less hectic and I started, you know, my son, my son with the heart problems has also bronchopulmonary dysplasia. So, you know, significant lung disease from being premature. And so he was in the hospital all the time with pneumonia. And I started becoming aware about like vaccine hesitancy. And then I was like, wait a minute, wait, wait, what, what is this thing? And so that's how I kind of, I sort of started to put the pieces together about how it's so easy to be 
lost and to not have easy answers and to see these easy answers that, you know, aren't real and to realize how harmful misinformation, you know, was. And so that's why I decided I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to, I really decided this is so funny. I love telling the story, but I really decided I was going to fix the medical internet. I was like, yep, I got my backpack on my back and I'm going to go fix the medical internet and it'll take me a couple of weeks. And <laughs> you sure are. That's for sure. That's such a beautiful story. I, I know about your, your, your kids and, but just hearing you put this into perspective, I think is so beautiful for anyone listening. Cause sometimes people may look at your Instagram or my Instagram or your Twitter or mine and see, you know, we're just debunking misinformation. And when we're putting out there, like, listen, this is false. The people reading it sometimes, and I know you've experienced this, sometimes people are almost offended by us debunking something that they so believe in. And you're coming from a place where you're explaining that you've been there, you've been in their shoes you know, I just think that's so beautiful the way you explained it. Like you're empathetic and understands that the misinformation that anyone, even someone, a brilliant physician like you, when you love your family member, your children, you're looking for the answers. I recently, you know, went through that with my niece who has leukemia and she's now in remission, but, you know, kind of same thing. I don't know much about pediatric cancer. And there are so many predatory people out there giving X, Y, or Z you know, cures, treatments, remedies, essential oils for kids with cancer. And I look at my sister and her husband, you know, they would do anything to help their kids and they would pay for any therapy that was possibly helpful. And I am so lucky that my best friend from med school is a pediatric oncologist. And she was the one who was able to guide them and be like, no, don't do this, do this. And, you know, and she had an amazing uh, oncology team, evidence-based, all this stuff. But, you know, it makes you realize for anyone listening, if you've been duped by medical misinformation out there. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's happened to me. I'm a doctor. It's happened to all of us. This is why it's so challenging. And this is why I'm so, I'm just so thankful that you shared that. So people can understand where you're coming from with, it really is coming from a place of you've been there. I think also too, one of the things that you get sort of some insight as a physician is, you know, sometimes there isn't anything to do and sometimes doing something is actually really bad. Yep. And I, there was a guy who wrote something in the New York times several years ago. And he said, sometimes the best thing to do in medicine is no thing. I right? like nothing. And he wrote it that way. And it's really, I mean, sometimes you have to wait for the treatments to work. I know the places they go to get a lot of the disinformation. I've seen it as so many times. And, and I'm like, wow, you know, if, if somebody really has a cure for this fairly common condition, I mean, you know, why haven't they published it in a leading journal? Like, why don't they want to help everybody else? Why don't they want to patent their super cool thing then? And, you know, and get more people to buy it. But, you know, I get it when you're desperate. Look, I mean, I almost took my kid to a stem cell clinic, like in China. It just, I got so sucked in, but, you know, like, like you you and, you know, your, your family, you know, instead of buying that ticket, what I did was I thought, okay, I'm going to email somebody at this university. And I used all of my, Hey, I'm friends with so-and-so, you know, I played medical geography, right? I'm friends with so-and-so. And I just have this question about stem cell. just like people ask me all the time. And this person, this doctor replied, he's um, from Duke. And, and, you know, he said, you know, cause I saw he was a big cerebral palsy, you know, researcher. And he just said, you know, I, you know, we just don't have clinical trials to support that. And there's obviously like, he didn't say anything that I couldn't have read, but he said it in a way that stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I get like, people need to see it over and over again. Cause sometimes it's going to be just said in that way that it sticks. I totally agree. And, and I think that that is so well said with regards to how we have to be comfortable saying we don't have a solution. We have to be comfortable saying we don't know, which can be the hardest thing to tell a patient. And I think where the functional medicine world comes into play is that they give answers where there aren't any. And I can see how, if you're a patient, that's incredibly comforting, but it's really unfair because the the patient is the one that gets harmed by it. If you're giving someone, you know, the false, I've seen the stem cell therapy be touted for coronary artery disease. And meanwhile, I see a patient who's not on guideline directed medical therapy, like a statin, aspirin, PCSK9 inhibitor. And 
So they're they're seeing a practitioner who's skewing the uh, guideline directed treatments, but they're giving them these experimental treatments. And it's not the patient's fault because they just are they're just like us. Everyone's just looking to do what's best for their family, their health. It's the people who are the purveyors of misinformation and disinformation that really it's so painful. And I know you've been against this, you know, trying to fight against the misinformation of this war against functional medicine too, because so much of it has bled into the GYN space. What do you think the most common myths you've seen in women's health that you've had to, to debunk? Cause I have a ton for you here. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the biggest one is that you shouldn't have vaginal discharge. We see that over and over again. And we see that weaponized in so many different ways, right? Like, you know, w- like when some woman's magazine writes something about, Oh, if you eat pineapple, your vagina will taste better. Yes. Okay. Well, just by saying that you're implying that there's a problem, right? So whether it's, you know, you're explicitly saying it, you're implying it, it's problematic. So I would say, you know, because that, you know, that gives us this whole awful feminine hygiene industry and both the big feminine hygiene industry, like, you know, summer's Eve and their awful stuff. And, but also like the bespoke products, right. That, you know, that are, you know, oh, we're, you know, woman owned. Well, yeah, women can be predators too. I don't know. I mean, you know, so, so it's a problem. You know, people think that, oh, well, this, this woman's making this, you know, this is really her mission. Well, well, that's great. But if her mission is incorrect, then that's a problem. And, you know, so her, not her mission, her information is incorrect. And so, you know, that's, I say everything related to vaginal discharge is probably the biggest one because that's the biggest industry and there's so many spinoffs from that. And what's so interesting that you point out is that the first thing you started with, I think is so helpful to elucidate the issue here is that you say vaginal discharge is normal. And so they're pathologizing something that is normal in order to make an industry out of it. Right. Absolutely. And it's, you know, to shame women. And, um, you know, I think that unfortunately, you know, there's this, I'm like, wait, really? Like you think dry sex is good? Like, what are you even like, it's everything's supposed to be wet. Like it's, you know, it's supposed to be wet and a little bit, you know, gushy and, you know, that's the whole kind of point of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you need the slide. So it, yeah, it's, and it comes back. A lot of it comes back to purity culture, right? You know, if you're wet, then you're loose. And if you're loose, you're a slut, if, you know, then you've cheated, like all these awful connotations are built up into it. Right. Which in not in the same way, you know, for, for men. So, so yeah, so there's, there's really a lot of, you know, it, you, you should be dry until you're supposed to be pouring wet, like on command. And then of course, you know, that needs to stop immediately because it's messy. And I'm like, what are you even talking about? What are, why are there all these, who, who, who died and left you? King of the vagina? That's a great point. Well, actually building on that, one of the questions people had, and I, I'm hoping you can also tie into helping to clarify the terminology. Cause I know people really use vagina, vulva, et cetera. They use it all incorrectly. So I was wondering if you could do two things. One is clarify the terminology. And two is a question we got a lot is that when you touched on the um, products is that what should women actually be cleaning their vulva with that's safe and effective and what should they not be wasting their money on? Sure. So the vagina is the inside. That's the tube that connects your cervix and uterus with the outside world. And that has become this euphemism for everything, which is really awful. I mean, that would be like saying scrotum is everything, right? Like obviously like body parts are different, but yeah. So vulva has become like grossly neglected or the vulva is the outside where your clothes touch the skin. And we're kind of the two overlap is the vestibule if not inside or outside, just like at a door, like, you know, your doorway, your vestibule of the door. So you have one there too. And I think there's a religious vestibule as well, but I'm probably not the person to answer that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, you know, so the vagina needs zero cleaning. All attempts to clean inside in the vagina result in harm. And that includes using that swizzle stick that's been sort of going around on social media. It's like a sponge on a stick that these people are selling to clean your vagina out after sex. It's like, okay, that's why they make Navy blue towels. You just like, you know, wait, isn't that, that's, that you have a sex towel. You put it on beside the bed. You're like, Hey baby, it's on tonight. Sex towels there. I'm a big believer in sex towels. I want to come up with my own line of sex towels. And that would be like really awesome. I'll buy them. (laughs) (laughs) And so, so anyways, even cleaning inside with water is damaging. Like douching. What about that? Which I don't even know what that is. 
It's, it's um, putting some kind of liquid medicated stuff into the vagina to clean it out. And you don't want to do that. The vaginal discharge comes out when it needs to come out. It's all regulated. You don't need to do anything just like you don't need to clean out your eyes. You know, like it works just fine. Like your skin, you have to look at why do we clean our skin? So we clean our hands because we don't want to get bacteria in our mouth, right? So we don't want to get E. coli and put it in our mouth, you know, from after you wipe yourself to go to the bathroom or, you know, food preparation, you, you know, or you're, you've got, you know, MRSA on your hand and you don't want to like scratch yourself. So, so we, we need to clean our hands with antibacterial products, right? We don't want to spread coronavirus. So all this stuff. So hands need to be cleaning. Everything else is really a choice. You know, the skin on the vulva is a little bit more sensitive and it's a little bit more, I would say less watertight. So it can absorb things a little bit more. So you just, you want to be careful with it. And, you know, water works well for many people, but water isn't going to take off sebum. Um, and so for people who want to be a little bit, you know, they like to a different feel than just using water, then, you know, just a gentle facial cleanser is fine. So the same kind of thing you'd put on your face, but not stuff with like salicylic acid, just, Mm -hmm. you know, gentle facial cleanser. I like, and I mentioned them, I mentioned several in the vagina Bible. I personally really like a CeraVe. It's got those ceramides in it. And on, I have eczema all over my body anyway. Um, and I find it's a, it's really great. I love it. It's moisturizing. Yeah. Um, Cetaphil's good as well. You serum. Yeah. So just one of those three things, you know, put a pump or two in your hand. That's great. Take a swipe on the outside, take some water with your hand, give another swipe or use a face cloth and do a swipe. There's no scrubbing needed here. Um, and if you remove your pubic hair, your skin is going to get drier. So you have to be super careful about products that you use because soap is drying. Every sort of feminine wash is like got nasty stuff in it. It's got fragrance. If it smells like something, it has fragrance. And you know, there's no regulation products and say they're fragrance free. And what they have is they have like rosemary extract in it, right? Or whatever, lavender extract. So I recommend one of those three cleansers they're inexpensive. You can find them anywhere and they're great for your whole body too. I don't ever use soap anywhere except on my hands. So that is so helpful because the industry, as you mentioned, is so pervasive. It's everywhere. I mean, there's ads for the wipes, like scented wipes and the vaginal washes, et cetera, everywhere. So the wipes, everything you're saying, waste of money, chuck it. And not only is it a waste of money, but it can also have more negative effects. Oh yeah. I see irritation from these products all the time, all the time and wipes, especially. So people overclean with wipes and you have to remember people like, Oh, but they're good for babies. Well, well, the reason why we, well, they're not actually good for babies. Most pediatricians will tell you that using a face cloth, you know, with a gentle cleanser is probably better, but I get it. I have two kids. And when you're out in public cleaning up smashed poop from a diaper is really challenging. And so not, not many people are going to want to walk around with that poopy face cloth back home, right? I totally get that. So what are wipes designed for? They're designed to remove fecal matter from the skin. So if you have anal incontinence, then by all means, keep wipes with you, because if you can't get that off your skin, it's going to cause irritation, right? But if you're just going to the bathroom, like, like a regular person, toilet paper or a bidet is fine. And you're actually going to cause more harm. So you have to realize like, what is the original purpose of a wipe is to clean off fecal matter. And you know what? Everybody poops the same way. So why do they not sell these products for, for men? Because obviously it's all tied up in some kind of prepping that you, that, you know, women need to do for heterosexual sex, you know, it's all geared for that. And so, yeah, just say no to wipes. It's a waste of money. And so many of them contain allergens and irritants and they're horrible for the environment. None of them are flushable. They'll say they are, but they're bad for plumbing. (laughs) You've heard it here first. And, you know, so just to recap, say no to wipes, say no to douches, say no to the washes that are specifically for marketed um, towards the vulva that are marketed towards their scented, all these things. It's not going to help you medically health-wise. And if anything, it could harm you. And like Dr. Gunter just mentioned, you don't need it. You have a self-cleaning organ and mechanism there in place that is perfectly the way it's supposed to be. I think it's important to also note that I'm sure you would agree that if something is abnormal, then these washes are not the first place you should go. It should be to your GYN to get an exam if you have something that's changed for you individually. 
Absolutely. So if you notice a new odor, if, you know, someone has mentioned it to you in a kind way, then yeah. But you know, if somebody says something awful about your body, they're the one who has, has the problem. Right. So, um, cause we see a lot of that, you know, I see a lot of women who are told that there's something wrong with how they smell because of a male partner and there's never anything wrong. That's and horrible. they, it's awful. It's, horrible. you know, imagine your first sexual partner telling you that you stink. Oh my imagine, God. Yeah. I see so many problems from That's that. Horrifying. You know, yeah. Yeah. It's not uncommon. I mean, I mean, I probably see somebody once a month. I mean, I run a specialty clinic for vaginal problems, right? So I'm going to see more than other people. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Like, I just, I want to like, like, let me at him who like, let yeah. me at that. Like, I just want to like go at him because it's so damaging and so harmful. And, you know, you know, especially when you're a teenager, you're so vulnerable to what people say about your body. And to have somebody who's supposed to love you or says they love you say something damaging about your intimate parts, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. So for someone listening, how can they tell if it's something that needs attention by seeing the doctor or if it's something that is just, what are some easy kind of telltale signs that they can kind of tell whether it's time to go see their GYN? Yeah. I mean, so if you've noticed a change in your odor and it's persistent, then yeah, you should, you should call your doctor. If you've noticed that you've got an itch, significant itch. And you're like, I want to scratch that. And it, you know, it's lasting for more than, you know, just an evening or something like that. Cause you know, we all can get itches in different body parts. Right. Right. So, you know, if you've got an itch, if you have pain, if sex hurts, sex should not hurt. So if you have pain with sex, you should be seen. I mean, that's a really big myth that pain with sex can be normal and it's not, it's a sign that there's a problem. That's super helpful. Well, now I have some more myths for you to debunk because there are just far (laughs) too many in your specialty. I I was just saying before we started recording that I think that the women's health space, thanks to Goop, has maybe topped the nutrition space for the place with most of this information. Okay, so fact or fiction, okay? Um, Peeing after sex actually helps to prevent UTIs. Is this true? No, it's not true. There's actually no data. I know, yeah. So, you know, the big secret in medicine, right, is some dude wrote something in a textbook in the (laughs) 1940s or 1950s, (laughs) and it's just been perpetuated since then. You know, that's true. I'm sure it's true of cardiology as well. I I literally, just so everyone knows, I literally thought that was true until right now. (laughs) So I have been duped. Yeah, no, it's been taken out of the, the, you know, the recommended guidelines for urinary tract prevention. You know, people do it all the time. It make any sense if, 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 if it's based on, you know, the idea that, you know, a lot of urinary tract infections are related to sort of increased adhesion, right. Between, um, you know, the bacteria and the uroepithelium, but really peeing is going to rip that stuff off. <laughs> like that doesn't really make any sense. And, you know, so everybody, I see a lot of people with current bladder infections and every single person's peeing after sex and they also have recurrent infections. Gotcha. So yeah, it's been removed from the guidelines. And so I say, you know, is cuddle, have some cuddle time. I had a man send me a direct message on Instagram once to thank me for writing that in the vagina Bible, because he said he has never been able to cuddle after sex with his partner because she would sprint to the bathroom every single time. And now she'll cuddle for a little while. And of course it hasn't changed whether or not, you know, she gets flattered. (laughs) That is so sweet. You're saving relationships and, uh, and time too. The second one that Thankfully, I think I already know this one, but fact or fiction, drinking cranberry juice helps with UTIs. Yeah. So cranberry juice does not. So, you know, it's just one, again, you know, people always talk about big pharma. Well, you know who funded all those cranberry studies? Big cranberry. (laughs) And again, it's based on this idea that there's something in cranberries that might affect, you know, how E. coli and other bacteria adhere to the uroepithelium. Thing is, no one's actually ever proven that that does. You know, so it's all based on like a, like a hypothesis on a hypothesis. There've been a ton of studies looking at cranberry and none of them have been, you know, have shown much of anything. And in fact, Lindsay Nicole, Dr. Lindsay Nicole is one of the world experts on urinary tract infections. She was actually one of the professors where I was in medical school. And um, she was known then as like, you know, world expert on UTIs. And whenever there's like a consensus piece or something, she's always writing the opinion. And she says, it's time to abandon cranberry. And if Lindsay Nicole says it, like, that's good enough for me. She's, she's like, like the top dog. Perfect. Well, I'm glad we can sort all of this out because there are so many misconceptions in this space. And the next one that everyone, I'm sure you've seen this a million times, but so many women sent this in that eating sugar causes yeast infections. And that's why they tell people to go on keto, which 
seems to me like it's false. Fact or fiction? Well, that's probably like reason 250 not to go on keto. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, whatever. If you like it, that's fine. But yeah, no, so it doesn't. So obviously, you know, if you don't have diabetes, your pancreas controls your blood sugar, right? So, um, so you're not getting these massive spikes. Like, why is nobody worried about the glucose spiking elsewhere? Like, why are they just worried about the vagina? Like, it makes right. no sense. Also, the vagina has a higher glucose level at times than your blood. So, oh. yeah. So, all that good bacteria that's living in your vagina has got to eat something. Yeah, and it eats sugar. That's what it eats. Yes. Yeah, so that's based on this whole like total misunderstanding. I think someone really, literally, again in a textbook thought, oh, well, we add sugar to yeast to make it proof. So clearly that's a problem. It's like, okay, that's a totally different thing. Um, so I really believe that's where it came from. I don't know for sure, but that'd be my guess. But yeah, no. So there's people have actually studied it. So somebody wow. did a really elegant study where they gave a woman a really large bolus of sugar to drink, like the stuff that's in the glucola that we give pregnant women to drink. So it produces a reliable sort of hit to the system. And they measured um, blood glucose and they measured vaginal glucose. And guess what? The vaginal glucose levels did not change as anticipated. And, you know, the, it, the vagina doesn't like filter blood. There's very, very little fluid in the vagina it comes from the serum. This is just a tiniest amount of transidate. It's all produced locally internally, but yeah. So what happens is when your cells are filled with stored sugar, glycogen, your vaginal epithelial cells, and when they shed, when they, cause they turn over every six to eight hours, that's, you know, you need something cause you know, you're going to have friction. You need something that can rebuild itself quickly. Um, so those shed cells release the glycogen into the vagina to feed the good bacteria. Wow. That makes so much sense. You know what the common theme is here is that a lot of this misinformation comes from proposed hypotheses or mechanisms rather than outcome data. This is the, the, the line that I am constantly saying with every piece of medical misinformation, it's always based on mechanisms or hypothesis. It's never based on outcome data because what results in outcomes ends up in treatment protocols and guidelines, right? right. So that's why where all these mysteries come from. Well, unfortunately, one huge misconception that's been all over the natural, holistic, functional medicine space has been, um, which I've noticed so much lately, and I got tons of questions on this for you, was there's been a lot of demonization of oral contraceptive pills. Women who feel that they have been told it makes you infertile, it can cause all of these problems, and women are all seeking these non-hormonal methods of, of birth control. And I was hoping you could touch on that because I cannot believe how many women who uh, have messaged me just fearing OCPs. Right. So, so you always have to look at, you know, who's prevent, who's sending these messages out there. And they're always people who are making a profit off of that. Always. So, you know, there's a huge cottage industry in this whole post birth control pill syndrome, which is a totally factitious, made up unstudied thing that comes from naturopaths, which I would actually say is where a lot of this sort of mechanistic misinformation comes from. You know, all of this stuff that I'm debunking is either naturopathic or functional medicine, which Always, is basically yep. an overlap. And it's a complete misunderstanding of the physiology. It's like, that's not how it works. It's sort of like, well, if you start with your hypothesis that the earth is flat and then you design your aircraft around that, you're going to have problems, right? And that's what I really want to impress on people. Like this, it's as bad as that. It's as bad as the earth being flat. Like, so when I talked about the whole thing about sugar, like that's com that's common knowledge. I know the myths get perpetuated and, and doctors are part of that, but that original myth is so mechanistically impossible. Like it's like the earth being flat. So it's the same thing. So post-birth control, this whole thing. So yeah. Can you specify that? Cause that's what people were asking a lot about. They, there's this, there's this, this theory of post-birth control syndrome. Is that what it's called? Yeah. It's basically a lie. That would okay. be the best way to do something that's purposely untrue, I guess that's a lie, right? So it's not absolutely. studied. There's absolutely no information about it. And the people who promote it sell, oh, guess what? They sell supplements to help you recover. So if the pill caused infertility, we would know, okay? This has been around, the pill has been around for a long time. If you understand how the pill works, you would know it can't cause infertility. The way it suppresses the brain 
is basically the same thing that happens during pregnancy. There's a lot of overlap. We would know this. You know, there have been so many studies about return to fertility after the pill. And it's basically within one to two months. People forget that it takes up to a year for 85% of people to get pregnant. People don't get pregnant their first or second months. I mean, some people do. And that's normal. Right, yeah. And that 15% of people are going to take longer than a year or they may have an infertility problem. And so when you step back and say, no, there's no such thing as a post-birth control pill syndrome. You know, what often happens is people are on the pill for a very long time and they don't realize or remember what their periods were like at the beginning. So then when they come off, their periods are haywire. Well, they were always gonna be haywire. You were having it suppressed by the pill. So, or people stop in their forties, which is when menstrual irregularities start because of, you know, heading into menopause. So there's always a physiological explanation for what's happening to your body. It's not always the one people want to hear, but there's always an explanation. And my number one rule of thumb is if someone is selling you a supplement, they are an unreliable source of medical information. You should not be following that person. You can use them as your store or your source of information, but you cannot use them as both. And so if they have a store, they should be done for you. I love this. This golden rule applies across the board in cardiology and nutrition. That is beautiful. Someone selling you a supplement, you should definitely uh, not be, you know, taking their medical information to heart at all. And I completely agree. I mean, I always say to people, would you get your information on depression from the company that sells Prozac or Zoloft? No, you wouldn't. Like you wouldn't, you, you don't get your medical information from the drug ads. Right. Right. I always tell people supplements are unregulated pharmaceuticals. And why would you want to trust someone who's selling you an unregulated pharmaceutical? If they believe in their product so much, why haven't they partnered with big pharma? I mean, it always gets back to, look, if that product worked, big pharma would be all over it. And my favorite example of that, I don't want to turn this into cardiology, but you know me, I'm quite outspoken about the, yes. uh, uh, the misinformation around supplements as well. And the perfect example of when pharma sniffs and finds something that could be effective, they study it. And the best example is fish oil. Fish oil has been studied in a gazillion formulations in a thousand trials by pharmaceutical companies. And finally, one that's high dose EPA in the reducer trial showed to be beneficial in primary prevention for a specific population of people with high triglycerides, diabetes, et cetera. But there have been so many fish oil studies. So if, if pharma thinks that something's going to be beneficial, they will study it. And, and they probably actually were on it originally and abandoned it. You know, absolutely. These things are, you know, that takes animal studies and a basic science, bench science. I mean, people forget that before a product even goes to like phase one trials, there's probably five or more years of bench research behind it. Right. You know, so, you know, they're looking at animal studies. They have, you know, so many, so much data out there and supplements have none of that. Well, I think a big area from women who um, sent me questions where they've gotten a lot of fear mongering about birth control pills is women with PCOS. So I was hoping you could touch on that because PCOS is super complicated. And, you know, I know patients that have it, it is, you know, something that can be really tough, both physically, emotionally, everything. And so it breaks my heart to see these patients specifically taken advantage of by all of these kind of anti-science, more pro these holistic health kind of areas that are selling supplements to them and sets. Could you touch on that topic? Yeah. I mean, birth control pills are a very, very accepted way to manage PCOS. So I think the first important thing is, you know, we don't have cures for PCOS, right? We manage it just like we manage a lot of conditions. You manage high blood pressure, you know, we manage many things and that's okay. Like managing is, I think this is a big disservice that medicine does sort of illusion that we cure things. We, you know, yeah, we can cure your appendicitis and we can cure your broken bone. Well, I can't, but an orthopod can, (laughs) but you know, um, but we manage things and, and obviously there are almost always some lifestyle changes people can make to, you know, basically every medical condition is improved by exercise. PCOS would certainly be one of them, Um, but most medical conditions are, you know, so that doesn't really sort of, it's not really a standout there, but yeah, I mean, you know, the PCOS, it depends on what are your symptoms that are the most bothersome to you and, and what your, your pregnancy goals are. Right. So if someone's wanting to get pregnant, then obviously birth control pills are kind of off the table, but for people, you know, there are a variety of different treatment options and birth control pills are certainly one of them. They're a fantastic way to regulate bleeding 
They're a fantastic way to um, suppress some of the elevated testosterone that some people can have and to reduce the side effects from the elevated testosterone, like hirsutism, increased hair growth, um, you know, uh, loss of hair sort of in a balding pattern, that type of thing. So the birth control pill has been very well studied for PCOS. It's not poison. It's not harmful. It's not masking. This is a big thing that comes up all the time is that the pill is masking something like, what does that even mean? When someone says something that tells me that person does not understand medicine, or physiology, all. right? Totally. Yeah, they do not understand it. And again, that comes back to sort of naturopathic and sort of this functional medicine thinking. It's complete disinformation. Um, and so the pill doesn't mask anything. What it does is it provides treatment for bothersome symptoms and obviously pregnancy prevention too, if that's, if that's what you want. And, you know, a lot of the there obviously are some small risks to the birth control pill, but, you know, none of these naturopathic people are ever talking about the risks of pregnancy. They don't talk about the risk of 40 to 60 per 10,000 of blood clots in the first three months postpartum. You know, where are they talking about, you know, maternal mortality and all of these problems we see with pregnancy, right? So you always have to put everything in perspective. And uh, for many people with PCOS, birth control pills are fantastic treatments. And I think that one of the big problems we have is that we just don't get enough time to spend time in the office with patients, right? So often there are dietary changes people can make, but that's the same for every medical condition. I mean, across the board and the, and the, and the, the fact that people make it, uh, you know, too often these purveyors of misinformation, um, try to make it an either, or like you and I are more pharma shills recommending only medications versus they're recommending lifestyle changes and all these supplements and things. No, you and I are also recommending lifestyle changes and it doesn't need to be binary. The best combination is guideline directed medical therapy or, um, you know, and lifestyle changes and diet and all those things, which we recommend. So the polarization that happens, this binary thinking that they try to create that we are only pushing medications, I think confuses patients because in reality, like you said, lifestyle change is important, but guess what? There's so many times in life and in cardiology and in your specialty where medications are important too. Yeah. And I think the other really important thing is that when functional medicine or naturopathic medicine says that, oh, well, we don't, we don't emphasize lifestyle medicine. I'm like, no, we do. In fact, we're just not selling fake supplements for it. Exactly. Right. So when I talk to somebody about sleep disturbance, I'm not then offering them a scammy supplement. I'm screening them for sleep apnea. I'm, I'm screening them for depression and stress. I'm looking at their medications. I'm asking them when they turn their screen off at night. I'm asking them if they watch movies in their bed. And then I'm referring them on appropriately to, you know, sleep apnea screening, to a sleep medicine specialist, to a fantastic cognitive behavioral therapy program that we have where I work on sleep, right? That's what I'm doing. Now, the reality is, is fixing sleep is hard, hard. It's really hard. So if somebody offers you a supplement that's guaranteed to work, you can see how people would take that. Lots of people aren't offered CBT for sleeping. Lots of people, you know, don't want to, don't want to go to sleep apnea screening because they don't want to wear a sleep apnea machine. So they don't want to find out, like I get that. And so, you know, the thing is, is that we're all doing that. We're just not offering fake cures. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, back to the pill and, and fertility. One, one other big question I got nonstop was about seed cycling, which to be perfectly honest, I don't even know what that is, but I, I got it so much that I figured I had to ask. <laughs> so can I swear? Yes. Yes, absolutely. This okay. It's the cursed. biggest, it's the biggest scam ah! that can, can only what been- it is. Okay. So it's this idea that, that you eat specific seeds, like seeds, like sesame seeds. Yeah. Like sesame seeds. Yeah. 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 During different weeks of the cycle to optimize (laughs) your nutrition for menstruation. Cause you need this oil and that, I mean, it's like, Oh my God. Wait, I, I, this is not what I was expecting. Actual eating seeds. seeds. Yeah. So first of all, I would say, take a step back. Mm. Humans are incredibly evolutionarily speaking efficient omnivores. If you think about, for example, the evolutionary foods in Greenland versus the Mediterranean versus Japan versus New Zealand, right? People, people were able to eat an incredible diverse types of foods that would have had like no seeds or maybe some seeds or a lot of fat or very little fat. You know what? They all thrived. 
they all managed because we're very thrifty omnivores. Now, fortunately now we can have great foods from other regions and we can try new things and we can make our foods fit our lifestyles in different ways. But this idea that a specific oil from, you know, from seeds at specific times of the month is going to make a difference makes no sense. You I know, can't even think of the physiology or the mechanism in which this would make any sense. Yeah. I mean, it's based on fake ideas. I think about like, oh, this oil is going to stabilize this membrane and this is going to increase nitric acid. And it's just like, that is an ex- excellent case of being smack up against a tree and not being able to see a forest. Absolutely. That is exactly what that is. Absolutely. And yeah. I mean, you know, and of course, yeah, there's a lot of studies that show that, that people are healthier when they eat seeds. Yes. I mean, they're very nutritious. They're a great source of plant protein, many of them. So, you know, yes, they're, they're good for your diet. And if you made dietary changes that have more seeds in your diet, you're probably also having a healthier diet in general. Right. Yeah. Thinking about the overall context of the dietary pattern is so important. We always talk about how there's no such thing as superfoods and how this idea is just so, is so such a prominent feature of the functional medicine space. So, wow, I'm glad, I'm glad, but also sad that I now know what seed cycling is, but for anyone listening, ignore it. When I first looked it up, I was like, you're shitting me, right? This is why like, you're shitting me. I mean, it's just, so people, yeah, they have their complex little seeds they eat each week. And, you know, a lot of this stuff too, is basically like, you know, orthorexia, right? Like it's making people very, very obsessed with very specific diet patterns that they can't deviate from. And, you know, for a lot of people that can lead to very disordered eating and can actually have some pretty serious, you know, um, ramifications to lead people to anorexia can lead people to, to not enjoying their life, you know? Absolutely. 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 And based on no scientific evidence. So making a decision based not on science. So, well, the other big question that a lot of women had is there has been a big push in this health holistic space for the use of organic tampons. And this is something I know you're going to be able to debunk. So fact or fiction, we should all be using organic tampons. Yeah, that's totally made up. There's no health. There's absolutely no health benefit to using organic tampons. There are myths about tampons since the beginning of tampons because people want to tell women they shouldn't put anything in their vagina until they get, you know, the one mythical penis, you know, (laughs) right. They have to save their, they have to save their purity for the mythical penis, the mythical mythical penis. penis. Yeah. So, um, you know, so yeah, so no, I mean, (laughs) there's no data on it that would suggest anything. The people who are telling you it are, oh, guess what? They're people who sell organic tampons. Absolutely. I read a really interesting article recently on the cost of organic farming and how, you know, that they're using pesticides. They're just not using the ones that you've heard of. You know, if it's just like, you know, if I tell you that, you know, you know, that, um, I don't know, carbon, carbon monoxide is harmful. Um, if, if it turns out that it also kills weeds or whatever, that doesn't mean it's necessarily like good, especially for the, the people who are actually having they use to look copper, after. They use all right. sorts of like organic. Yeah. I'm going to do an entire episode debunking organic because it is bonkers. I didn't even realize organic tampons was a thing, but apparently, you know, in the era of goop, what, what, what yeah. isn't possible. So there was again, a terrible abstract, how many of these things start. Listen, children, let me sit, sit back and let me tell you the story of the terrible abstract. <laughs> um, Cause that implies that goes everywhere, right? We everywhere. see with COVID all the time. Mm-hmm. So, so there was an abstract that suggested that the amount of glyphosate or glyphosate, I don't even know how to pronounce it in, in organic tampons was going to be absorbed in such a way, blah, 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 that it was going to cause all these problems. Well, so first of all, the study wasn't really like, there was no like data or how they did it. And so the, all these issues, you know, secondly, you know, that's just not, it's just completely made up. They didn't have, you know, organic, you know, anything to, so the, the study design was poor and people have actually, one study actually um, showed that sort of organic all cotton tampons might actually um, be worse for growing toxic shock syndrome. So I think it was wow. all cotton. I don't think they actually made a distinction of organic. So if they, you know, it's really a problem that everything sort of natural has this health halo and, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Right. So this idea that cotton is going to be better for your vagina is based on nothing. 
is based on nothing. Um, And uh, it turns out that, you know, one study showed that a cotton rayon blend was less likely to favor growth of the, you know, the super antigen involved with toxic shock syndrome. So I would say, you know, use what you want to use, but getting back to that article that I mentioned about, you know, they also use like other things. A lot of these other things that are used are actually really harmful to the workers. And also the labor involved in organic farming. Pesticides obviously make farming a little bit less labor intensive. So if you're going to have to weed by hand, if you're going to have to do other things by hand, you're actually extracting more labor from the people working. And they and then actually can have more problems. So, you know, it's a little bit more complex than you or I or, you know, anybody selling you organic tampons is actually, you know, able to tell you. So Absolutely. And even for the environment, I'm going to do an entire episode with an environmental scientist talking about organic versus non-organic. But um, even the environment, there's more eutrophication potential with the way organic farming is now. They're using more land all these things. It's not even necessarily better for the environment. Lots of misinformation from that industry. And the fact that it came over to tampons is wild to me. Right. Well, you know, scaring women about their vaginas works. Works. It's really concerning. People say, you know, and they think about the number of tampons that you use over your lifetime. And if you're buying an organic brand, you know, you're probably doubling your costs. And that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money for something that has no known benefit. Well, the other big one that, um, has, you've been really vocal about. And so, um, you've been a great resource. So, um, Dr. Gunter's Instagram is a phenomenal place to read more about this. But one thing I was hoping you could touch on briefly, because I got a lot of questions is this continued fear mongering about the vaccine and the COVID vaccine and infertility. It's just kind of the number one reason why I think women my age are hesitant women in their thirties. And I was hoping you could kind of just, yeah, absolutely. So what I would say to anybody who is vaccine hesitant related to infertility is this is a common anti-vaccine talking point. So this is not new. This is something that they have said before with other vaccines, which obviously have very different mechanisms. Well, that's, that's actually really interesting because that's, because that's a a good target to go after because so many women are concerned about that. So, right. Absolutely. So that we saw this with the HPV vaccine that we were going to sterilize young girls. And it's also very common. uh, It was a common myth with the tetanus vaccine, right? The tetanus toxoid. And, um, you know, the, and there's a huge overlap with conspiracy theory thinking because, you know, people believe that the WHO was trying to clandestinely sterilize women in Africa with the tetanus toxoid vaccine. So people forget that neonatal tetanus is a huge problem. And, you know, before we had the vaccine, we had a lot of problems and we want, you know, we, we want everybody in the world to be protected. So they don't have to ever, you know, lose a child to neonatal tetanus. Right. So, so there's that. Um, so it's a common anti-vaccine talking point. So right there, that should tell people that it's not based in, you know, facts, you know, secondly, there's no plausible mechanism for that to happen. So we get back to sort of this mechanistic thing. It's just, it's not plausible. And the animal studies would have shown something, you know, that, so, you know, the, they use, rat studies before, you know, vaccines come to market and they're able to study the same, even though rats don't menstruate, they have estrus, they still have the same hormones that go up and down, um, you know, luteinizing hormone, follicle stimulating hormone. And they study that they actually study to see if there's an impact on that. And if there's no impact, then they're like, okay, well then we can maybe move to the next step. And if there's some impact, they're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We gotta like, you know, look at this. So, you know, we have that, you know, preliminary data and, you know, I'd like to tell people that, you know, there's been well over 4 billion doses given now. Half of those have been given to, you know, people who can get pregnant. Well, probably a little bit less than half because obviously some are menopausal. But, you know, so probably one and a half billion doses to people capable of getting pregnant. If there was an impact on fertility, we would know. The vaccine's been out now for long enough. We have multiple studies that show there's no impact. And anybody telling you otherwise is a liar. They really are. A lot of these lies come from the same 12 people, you know, the sort yes. of disinformation dozen. That's and one of them is Dr. Christiane Northrup, who's an OBGYN, who's an OBGYN, who is a disgrace of a human, um, who really, you know, got her public platform courtesy of Oprah and PBS. Wow. Uh, yeah. And she was always awful. I mean, her original book has anti-Semitism in it and, you know, just absolute, you know, awful shaming women about sex, uh, you know, shaming women about abortion, um, you know, telling, you know, you just don't love yourself enough. That's why you have medical problems. Just like awful awful, awful things, how that became, you know, well, I know how it became popular because no other doctor was writing books that had anything to do with how women live their lives medically. 
And that's, you know, and that's what people want. It gets back to how we started the conversation. People want practical information. Now, of course, the practical information she was giving was ridiculous and a lie and she's an awful human being, but you know, if you're the first to the plate, you know, and then you, then your book becomes a bestseller and Oprah invites you. And then PBS invites you, then you've become a juggernaut. Uh, it's just uh, the vaccine the infertility misinformation spread by her. And like, as you mentioned, the disinformation doesn't has been so continuously like on a loop. And like you mentioned, you know, this is, I would venture to say the largest you know, distribution we've had of a vaccine simultaneously ever. Um, I can't think of anything else that's ever been like all at once, you know, everyone in the world getting one vaccine. And like you said so eloquently, if there was a signal of any kind with this many billions of people getting vaccinated, we, we would know. I feel like we're so hyper aware, actually the medical community, so hyper aware of any possible side effect, any possible, you know, everything is under a microscope. And the fact that ACOG, so the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and the fact that the Maternal um, Fetal Medicine Society is the fact that every guiding governing body in women's health has came out and said that getting vaccinated is so important. And also, if you could touch on how important it is because of pregnancy being higher risk for COVID. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to reemphasize about, you know, there is so much surveillance with this vaccine. I mean, yeah. was there like one case of blood clots with the J&J vaccine and the CDC was all over it. All so, over it. so keep that in mind, people. Like there's one case and everybody was like all over it. So this myocarditis thing has been like absolutely put under a microscope. The CDC is clearly being hyper-responsive. Uh, but yeah, so the problem with COVID and pregnancy is something that we've known. So many viral infections are catastrophically worse in pregnancy uh, due to the fact that, you know, your immune system is suppressed to allow you to carry a fetus that is half not your DNA, right? So your body is going to fight it and reject it. So we have all this complex immune system sort of surveillance and suppression to allow you to be pregnant. The downside is, is if you get a bad virus, some viruses, not all, you could die or you get very ill. I mean, you know, back in the day before the chickenpox vaccine, you know, existed, you know, we used to live in fear of a pregnant patient with varicella. They get varicella encephalitis and it's just awful, just awful. And, uh, you know, influenza, you know, we all know that, that that pregnant people are far more likely to die from influenza. And we've seen that with COVID and we've seen catastrophic, catastrophic outcomes. And the fact that, that people like Christiane Northrup have been scaring people from getting vaccinated pregnancy is just even worse because these are the people who need the vaccine the most. And I can't impress that enough upon people that, 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 you know, your ICUs, you know, are, are, are filled with pregnant people and they, they weren't before, right. You know, normally like there'd be like one, you know, depending on the size of your medical center, there'd be an occasional pregnant patient there usually because they either had some undiagnosed heart condition, you know, they showed up like in heart failure and you're like, Whoa, wait, wait a minute, wait, what's going on here? Or they, you know, they had a ruptured appendix or something, you know, something like that, or horrible, horrible problems with preeclampsia, things like that. At times there, you know, I was hearing from my ICU colleagues about, you know, five, six, seven, eight patients in their ICU, um, you know, calling codes on pregnant people. And, you know, you'd see like these news stories, you know, of these, you know, women dying, leaving four kids at home. Oh my God. You know, heartbreaking. It's you know, yeah, I've done more cardiology consults on pregnant women with COVID than, than I ever thought possible. And people, you know, before the vaccine came out or people who chose not to get vaccinated in the ICU. And it's, um, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because we have a safe and effective vaccine. And unfortunately the people who, um, like Christine Northrup and the disinformation does, and they actually profit from their disinformation. Whereas you and I have zero relationship with Pfizer, Moderna. I have zero. You can look up every dollar anyone's ever taken from pharmaceutical industry on. You can Google it right now with our names. I've taken zero money from any pharmaceutical company and definitely none with that are related to the vaccine. So we don't stand to profit from, you know, sharing this information. We just want what's best for everyone listening. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it that way, doctors actually profit more from people not getting vaccinated, oh. right? Because you, you do procedures on people in the ICU. You, you know, you get do to round on, on them. The you get to do consults, right? So doctors actually make more money off of unvaccinated people That's than off vaccinated people. So, you know, if you want to 
if you're that type of person who really thinks doctors are that financially motivated, and I'm, I'm sad that people might think that, but if you actually just think about it logically, doctors make more money from unvaccinated people. It's, that's actually a really great point. And everyone that is advocating for the vaccine, I think in the medical community, I think we all feel like we're, we're reaching a point where people are really getting it. We're getting a lot of people vaccinated and then there comes a wave more of disinformation. It just keeps coming back. So, you know, if you do have questions, I would recommend just looking through Dr. Gutner's Instagram page. She has tons and she has this blog called the Vagenda, where she also goes through a ton of information about vaccines and, and everything else women's health too. That's super helpful. We had to push pause on this conversation because we literally could talk for hours, but don't worry, Jen is back next week and we are diving into menopause. You're going to love that conversation as much as I know you loved this one. So make sure to tune in on Wednesday for part two with Dr. Jennifer Gunter and make sure to check out her Instagram at Dr. Jen Gunter. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness fad you'd like debunked next and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at MD and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction and be sure to tune in next week.